This is a Main Hustle Media Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Jackie O and you're listening to Militantly Mixed. Yo, this is Rashani from the Single Simulcast. And when I'm not making you laugh or making up parody songs, I'm kicking back listening to Militantly Mixed. Main Hustle Media podcasts are recorded on the ancestral lands of the Chumash, Tongva, Karankwa, and Hohokam people. And I wish to pay my respects to the people of those nations, both past and present. Konnichi, what's up, cousins? Welcome to Militantly Mixed, the podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your sir auntie, Charmaine Fury, a.k.a. The Blasian Blurred. And this is episode 197. My guest today is Michael. She is the new caucus coordinator for CMRS, Critical Mixed Race Studies organization that I've been talking about the last few episodes of the show. I met Michael back in December after I had joined as a member the Mixed Asian Caucus, which is being co-led by my friend Lee Painter Kim. And Lee had mentioned that there was a queer caucus, and if I had any questions, I could reach out to the coordinator to find out more. So I reached out to Michael, and we ended up having scheduling a meeting, a Zoom meeting, and during the course of that conversation, uh, getting to know Michael a little bit, I also ended up taking on the leadership of the Mixed Queer Caucus, uh, of which I've asked my friend Jen Lee from Auth Ethnic Podcast to join me in co-leadership. But in that conversation where I met Michael, I knew I needed to get her on the show like as soon as possible. And good thing, too, we were able to get together to record because from the time this episode airs, she will be days or a week or two away from having a baby. So I was able to <laughs> to get her before her life changes dramatically. And I'm so glad, too, because... I know I say this every week, but it's always true every week. I had such a wonderful conversation with Michael. I learned so much um, about mixedness from a different perspective from my own. And it just reminds me how fucking awesome it is to be the host of Militantly Mixed. To have started a podcast where... I get to talk to mixed people who come from all over the world and get different perspectives of mixedness, see mixedness from a different lens than I naturally see from my myself and from my own experiences. I learned so much. I've grown so much as a person, I believe. And this conversation that I had with Michael really kind of triggers me thinking about stuff like that too, of just like how being a regular mixed person before I started being a mixed podcaster, how I identified myself, how I identified mixedness and others is just so drastically different now that I've gotten a chance to have all these conversations with people from all over the world. Um, the, the empathy and the openness to hearing about other people's experiences, but also like like a willingness to try to actually like change myself and see mixedness through the lens of these other people that I get to talk to on the show. It's a fucking great job, even though it's not a paid job, but I invented a job for myself that is like the coolest thing. 
in the world <laughs> for me to do. Uh, so I just, I, I say that to say that I, I would like to thank Michael for taking the time, especially right before about to have a baby, to to chat with me and, ex and express her experiences as a mixed person who has lived in multiple countries, who speaks multiple languages, uh, who's married to a partner who has a different language as well, and is about to raise a child with all of that combined in, in them as well. Um, I'm, I'm just so grateful that people take the time to share their mixedness and their stories with me for this show. Um, it's, it's just awesome. It's, I'm, it's, I never not want to do this. <laughs> it's so good. Before we get into today's episode, a few just updates and announcements that I want to share with y'all as usual. Um, as y'all know, I announced a couple weeks ago, the Be Your Mix SF anthology is now open for submissions. And it's been out for a couple weeks. We've started to receive submissions. They're ro rolling in still, uh, which I'm so excited about. So if you want to learn more about that, please head on over to militantlymix.com. Click on the Be Your Mix SF anthology tab right at the top of the page and read through all those guidelines make sure that whatever you write or have written fits within those categories of approval as long as it fits go ahead and click that submit payment button at the bottom of the page and then you can email your submission to me please make sure you read through all of those guidelines before you submit uh, because we will not be able to let you know if you qualified or not qualified until after the submission period closes because we, we need to keep those submissions coming in before we start our reading through process. Um, so you won't be able to have time to replace it if you don't submit it correctly the first time out the gate. So head on over to militantlymix.com, click on the Be Your Mixed Ass Self Anthology tab, read through all those guidelines. If there's still something you have questions about after reading through those guidelines, feel free to send those through. One of the questions that I'm not going to be able to really answer is, here's the thing I'm thinking of submitting, is it eligible? The way you determine that is reading through the guidelines. As long as what you've written fits within that submission guidelines, then go ahead and feel free to submit it. Uh, we're not going to be able to read things in advance to just tell you if it's submittable. Uh, so please make sure you read through those guidelines before you send those over. And a lot of your questions are answered there. If there ends up being more questions that aren't addressed on that page that I start to see coming through, I will update the page to include those frequently asked questions. But for now... So far, all of the questions that have been asked are already answered on that guideline submission page within reason. I mean, there's been a couple that are like, can you read this and tell me if it's submittable? But other than that, yes, they're answered. Uh, I'm really excited about it, though. We've gotten a lot of responses related to it and started to see new people get introduced to Militantly Mixed because of the anthology. So based off the folks of, that have been sharing the post and letting other people know it exists, uh, there's a bunch of new people who are finding the show saying they didn't know we existed before, that they're excited to, to have a, a community that they can connect to uh, within mixedness and also submit something to the anthology. So for all of y'all that have just discovered the show because of the anthology post, hello, welcome cousins. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I recommend just digging into the crates, go back into the catalog. You can enter at any point. It's not, um, 
time necessarily oriented. It's just me having a conversation with another mixed person. Uh, the biggest change you'll see is that over the years, as I learn and speak to more people and get more education about mixedness and mixed identity and intersectionality, uh, I grow and change throughout the that time. But yeah, you can kind of dig in with wherever and let people know if you if you've heard an episode that really speaks to you or connects with you, send me a message, DM, something like that. And I will share that um, with the guest that was on that show too. Many a time I've been able to reach out to a guest and let them know that someone emailed me about their episode. And uh, it's always exciting for the person who's been a guest on the show to learn that their story impacted somebody else. So if you enjoy what you hear, please feel free to engage with the show and let me know so that I can let them know. Because uh, that's how we build community here at Military Mixed. Uh, in addition to that, I told you all last week that I switched over to Anchor for my podcast host site. And a couple of things are happening as I get more access, as, I, as I'm um, getting more established. It takes a couple of weeks for everything to sort of flush itself out. Uh, but we have already achieved the necessary requirements to be able to connect to advertisers. So sometime over the course of the next couple weeks, couple months, um, I will start to get introduced to other advertisers that I can, you know, decide if I want to use for the show, uh, which will be a way for me to generate income for the show that is separate from me begging y'all to uh, submit to Patreon or actually Anchor also has a, a, a listener support thing that will become available over the course of the next month as well um but I'm, I'm looking forward to that opportunity too to start gaining a little bit of income with the show to help keep us going uh but if you would like to sponsor the show financially you are more than welcome to do that in fact you are the bread and butter of the show if that happens there are multiple ways to do that you can go to patreon.com slash militantly mix this is the og way uh, you can sponsor the show as low as a dollar a month to as high as anything you wish, and there are different reward levels depending on what you choose. And um, before I move to Mexico in a couple months, I do have some updated little rewards that I will send to people that are still currently active, uh, sponsors, new stickers, and things like that that I'll get out to you as a thank you for your continued support. And um, I do also want to give out a shout-out to one of our latest patrons shout out to echo for joining at the $20 a month level thank you so much for supporting the show as we get further along you'll start to receive things from me in um in either the mail or email and i really just appreciate y'all support the second way that you can sponsor the show is to drop some coins in the tip jar as i like to say and that's by going to paypal.me slash militantly mix if you don't want to participate in a long-term membership or sponsorship you can just drop some coins in that tip jar whenever you feel inclined so shout out to nina i see that you dropped another uh bit of coin in the tip jar again so thank you so much for that and what's coming soon in the next couple of weeks to a month will be the anchor way of doing things where you can actually go on to anchor.fm slash militantly mix and um, do listener support that way there is a, um, a sponsorship way which is not available yet but will become in the next couple of weeks and there's also just a coins in the tip jar kind of way as well again That'll be available by the end of the month, or I think um, I have to be on it for a month until it kicks in. 
Uh, but in addition to that, there's the kind of engagement and support of the show that I also think is extremely necessary in terms of helping us grow, and that is to interact. That is by sharing a voicemail on the Anchor page so that I can interact with that for the show, uh, sending emails and DMs and letting me know about different parts of the show that you've connected with, uh, sharing an episode. In fact, a personal share of an episode to somebody is one of the quickest ways of growing the show. If there's an episode you've heard that really connects you, to, like makes you think about someone in particular, and you send that link to them and say, hey, I listened to this podcast. This episode reminded me of you. Why don't you go ahead and check it out? That's a big way in which Militantly Mix has been able to grow and expand over the years where I've actually gotten emails from people that said, my friends shared this episode with me because... Um, you know, the guest has my same mix and oh my gosh, this is why this is how this episode affected me. So that is a great way to help grow listenership of the show. You can always also follow or subscribe on whichever podcaster podcatcher you listen to the show on and make sure whatever podcatcher you listen to the show on, you also leave a review. Now reviews, some people have mixed feelings about this, but with reviews, certain podcast apps will promote your show based off of how many reviews you get. And in the beginning, um, I used to get a lot more than kind of now, but that's because I don't actively ask for it. So I'm actively asking today. If you listen to the show pretty regularly, you love it, and there's stuff about it that you would like other people to know about, please feel free to head on over to, to Apple or Google or Spotify or whichever podcatcher you listen on, the big ones or the little ones. If they have a review function, just write a quick little review. It doesn't have to be too crazy. Um, but the more of those that we start to get, the more that app will push the show into uh, the eyes of people who are kind of interested in similar things. And that will help grow the show exponentially. It is uh, the word of the year for me is growth where it comes to Militantly Mix, both in terms of growing a larger audience, um, growing to be able to eventually support myself with doing this show, and um, to grow the community interactions uh, a little bit beyond what we currently have, which is mostly people emailing me directly, but I would like to actually have more community involvement and community engagement, even if I have to take it off of the Facebook uh, group and maybe put it onto a separate, more um, welcoming app space or something like that. I'm looking to a couple options, but that's pretty much all I got for y'all today. Let's get into today's episode. Again, my guest is Michael. She is the uh, caucus coordinator at CMRS. And we had just, it's such a great conversation that we have that I really feel like there's things that I've been able to kind of sit on and think about quite a lot since we spoke. Um, stuff that I've kind of jotted down that I'd kind of like to engage with her again. Uh, not anytime soon, since she's about to have a baby. Um, but <laughs> as a as I get to know her a little bit more through this caucus uh, involvement that I'll be doing over the next couple of years, um, I do hope to re-engage her on some of the topics that started on this episode that I hope to continue talking to her about as time goes on. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming our latest cousin to the Militantly Mixed family, Michael.
And today I am joined by Michael Lulay. We have recently got involved talking because I have joined a couple of the caucuses related to CMRS, the Critical Mixed Race Studies. Michael, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience and let's get into it. Yeah, so hi everyone. Um, my name is Michael. Um, she, hers, and um, I identify as French and Japanese. I actually migrated in the U.S. about eight years ago from Belgium and France. And um, yeah, I've never really lived in Japan long term, but I have been visiting Japan my entire life and my mom currently lives there. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much about me. I, currently, I'm on a postdoctoral fellowship at Duke University, but have been working from uh, Los Angeles, California, where I will be raising my newborn baby soon, who is soon about to pop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that's a, so I was really excited. Well, okay. Full disclosure, every time I find a Japanese mixed person, I always get excited because <laughs> of all the things I mix with, Japanese was always the hardest to express mixedness with. Um, mm -hmm. So in that case, I got really excited when we first met. Um, but you're also having a baby soon, so you're going to have a multi-generational mixed kid. What, uh, what's, your, what's your child's mix going to be? Oh, my goodness. So, so he is a boy. He's going to be, I guess, half, quote-unquote, half Indian, okay. a quarter French, and a quarter Japanese. And um, are you planning on speaking languages, all the languages to your child? I mean, listen, that's the plan. That's the <laughs> um, what's actually going to happen is a different story. Um, well, you know, th that's a very big, you know, question mark because my husband and I speak English together. Mm -hmm. And um, so hopefully he'll speak in Hindi to our future child. But for me, I'm like, do I speak French? Do I speak Japanese? Do I do both? Like, is my child going to be super confused or... <laughs> like a master, you know, multilingual person. I don't know. Like, yeah. you know, I think, um, well, and, and, and it's not just about language. It's like culture, culture like, you know, yeah. you know, it's, we live in America. There's so much mainstream culture here. So how do you implement our own, you know, ethnic and cultural values into that Um so yeah, those are big question marks yeah. that we have no answers to right I've now. I've <laughs> been following a lot of polyglot TikTok mm. um, because I'm fascinated by people who can just pick up languages. Um, in my Japanese side of the family, my when my grandmother came to the United States, she was a military bride and they told her not to teach your children Japanese because you're going right. to confuse their brains. This is the right. 50s. So she stuck to that so hard that even by the time I came around, after she's been divorced, my grandfather is gone. My mother is almost an adult because she was a teen mother. She still didn't speak Japanese to us mm -hmm. much. Like there were some words we always knew, mostly so we could talk about people if we were in public. So we knew like the races of people. Mm -hmm. We knew how to talk about money and we knew how to talk about food or bathroom mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Like it was pretty much all we ever did when I was younger. And um, from that, what I know is that I have all the Japanese vowel sounds, but I just didn't pick up enough language which was always a point of frustration for me um, as a child but not from like my mom's not very Japanese in her behavior mm -hmm. um, or in her culture or anything like that where I I am 
So I definitely would like get the culture from my grandma when I was there, when I, when I spent time with her and stuff like that. But then when the rest of the time I was black or British, cause I have a British grandmother too, that mm -hmm. we live on my black side of the family. And, um, I, I just like, I have an ear for accents. That's what I do better. I can't really mm -hmm. do the language. And I'm, so I've been mm -hmm. following the polyglot cause I'm like, what, what do you need to get your brain to be able to do this and not confuse like children of multilingual households. So right it's like a point of fascination which is the only reason why i'd ask because this episode is about you not necessarily your own point no but that's <laughs> point though maybe i should be looking into like you know what others are doing and have yeah. been doing or but you know i feel like with parenting at the end of the day it's like what you can do in the moment and keep them alive <laughs> but, and uh yeah, you can have a plan all you want, but you know, yeah, what, who knows life going is going to happen. So. <laughs> so how many countries have you actually lived in? Because you're, you're here in the States now, but you said you grew up in Belgium and France. Yeah, I guess those are the, the countries I've really lived in like long term. Like I, I traveled for a few months in other places, but um, I would say, yeah, France and Belgium is where I did most of my schooling. And then I came here um, first for an internship in LA and then I stayed for grad school. Um, and that's where I met my husband uh, a few years ago. So your mother's Japanese and your father is Belgium? Uh, Belgium? He's French. He's French. Okay, but yeah. you just lived in the Yeah, yeah, they separated. And so my mom found a job in Belgium. Mm. Um, I guess there was, um, there was a, a big Japanese company that was there in Belgium, um, which recruited at that moment. And so she and I moved there. Mm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you, you know, when, when you talk about how, you know, um, the military experience that you had or, or, you know, Asian Americans or Japanese Americans in the U.S. kind of like having to suppress their Japanese-ness for many reasons. That's definitely not what happens with Japanese in Europe. Yeah, I'm learning that Oddly. only recently am I starting to I mean, at, at least, you know, in, in the Western side of Europe, because most of the Japanese that are there are choosing immigrants and not forced, you know, immigrants and... There's just no history of, of violence per se. Right. Um, I mean, maybe more recently with the whole COVID and, and anti-Asian right, hate, right, but yeah. even that's that's still a very sort of American, like what's happening is is really, I think, siloed in the US. There's the way it is happening and the way we talk about race and, and you know, Japanese-ness. Um, so it's, it's extremely different. So I think, you know, the, the European experience for Japanese people and is so different than what's happening in the U S. And so definitely even for me, even if I lived in the Western world in Europe, coming here was a huge cultural shock. I imagine. Yeah. Cause every time we've been to some place in Europe, we've used my grandmother's Japanese almost as much as we have used English or French. Mm. So I told you I speak a little bit of French from school. Um, and mm -hmm. back when we went to France, I, I spoke more than I can now. Um, and she would pop away, like we'd let her disappear and she'd go to like a Japanese tour group because there was Japanese tour groups all over the place. And then she'd come back and be like, oh, the restaurant 
that we're talking about is over there or you know like she would find out that way so actually she got to use Japanese quite a bit in France um, at restaurants and hotels like all over the place it was it was kind of interesting that uh, we weren't paid attention to as foreigners necessarily you know um, well I guess there is more of this like tourist identity if you are um a Japanese person in Europe like you are labeled as a tourist um here you know I I I learned that coming here is that oh being Japanese is being a minority it's being you know because of the history of like Japanese and that American um uh like the, the whole the internment yeah exactly and which I was not aware of at all. It was like, there were camps in the US. Like I, I didn't know that. Oh, that, yeah. I guess that would make sense that you would never have heard that in school. Yeah, and that, yeah. you know, in, in Europe I was, I mean, I, I guess I was a minority because there was nobody mixed around me. Um, but I never, I guess, I mean, I struggled a lot with my mixedness, but I never considered myself a minority. Um, like, like my colleagues from the African continent, for example, or um, the South American continent. Um, I never saw myself that way. And then I came into the U.S. and somebody, I was involved in like advocacy and, and lobbying. And then somebody called me a woman of color. And I knew the term woman of color and the connotation that goes with it. Like a person of color, it again, it has this whole like minority concept around it. And I was like, me? Like, I'm a minority. I'm a person of color in, in that sense. And I've never seen yeah. myself that way. I always seen myself as just, oh, I'm different. Or, you know, oh, I speak Japanese. Mm. Or I, I'm a Buddhist. I'm a Shinto. But I never seen myself like, you know, sort of a different social and racial ethnic hierarchy until right. I came to the U.S. Um, and and then I realized that that um, that portrayal of me by others saying, "Oh, this is a woman of color," to me was not really accurate. Because I didn't grow up in the U.S. as a woman of color. Right. I didn't have the experience of what women of color in the U.S. go through. I came in as a 25-year-old mm -hmm. choosing immigrant, got to go to grad school. Yeah. And yes, in this setting now, because of my ethnic heritage and my cultural knowledge, I am minoritized do you feel like you're more uh, say obviously a minority for like do people treat you like a more obvious minority here versus back home were you ever approached as with the question of like what are you well I I think what's really complicated today is that I'm hyper aware of my privileged sure at, because of my education like I have a PhD right um and, and that sort of almost, it doesn't trump, but it, it, it really does something in terms of. It does help. 
in quotation, you know. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I do have an accent, so people realize that I'm not from here. But what I meant to say is that I, I don't really identify as a woman of color in the U.S. sense of the term. I identify as a international immigrant woman of color. Uh, sorry, an international woman immigrant, if that right. makes sense. No, yeah, that, that does, yeah. Um, and, and that comes with its whole set of issues being, even if you're choosing immigrant, the fact that you're just not American, and period, comes with so many, so many, you know, um, complications. Right. And... Um, and, and, you know, I was talking to my husband recently and I, I realized something. So I've been, you know, in the U.S. for eight years. Um, I've dated people before my husband. Um, but one thing I realized is that I probably stick with him and, and felt the most comfortable with him because he was also an right. international immigrant. And so I think that's kind of the, the part of my identity that in the U.S., here at this moment it is really what sticks with me is really what's important to me um as opposed to feeling oh i'm japanese so i'm a minority or i'm french right. so i'm like this cool little you know emily in paris chick you know mm-hmm. like um i i don't see myself as that i really see myself as this someone who decided to immigrate and with all the complication that goes with it. And, right. you know, there's visas. There are a lot of things we are not allowed to do. And mm-hmm. um, and, and just people, how they other you, period. Like, they exoticize you. Um, you find that that happens far more here in the States than it ever did back in Europe? Yes, Or definitely. depending where in Europe you were ever at, maybe? Yeah, and uh, I mean, I guess the exoticization has always happened. Mm. But, you know, in Belgium or France, French has always been my native tongue. So I didn't have an accent. Right. So, yeah, I look different, but people would not question my Frenchness. Here, of course, I have an accent. So people can automatically mm. know that I'm not from the U.S. Um, and, and, you know, again, questions of race and ethnicity is so prevalent here. Yeah. In ways that are kind of not there, at least for people who appear wider, like I do. Right. Um, Do you get seen as Asian very often in spaces? Do people automatically come up to you and kind of talk to you like they, like they know that you're Asian? Nowhere in the world. Nowhere in the world. (laughs) No, like, you know, I've, when I was in Europe, people were like, oh, are you from Morocco? Are you from Turkey? Mm. Are you from Tahiti? I, yeah, I can see that. Um, here, people are like, are you Mexican? Are you Hawaiian? And, and that's fine, you know, like, I, 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 like I, I don't mind appearing what, whatever people, like, it's their imagination um, and, and guesses. Um, I, I don't mind that at all, but it's more like, you cannot know my story. When I'm here, it's hard for people to understand my story because 
people have not immigrate have not chosen to leave their home to live somewhere else mm -hmm. and i'm i'm proud of my choice it's just it's it's complicated to immigrate and you you'll live that soon when you're gonna yeah, go to go, mexico yeah. well it's what's interesting with americans uh us americans is that the idea of immigrant here means first illegal in, mm -hmm. in a lot of the mainstream mind, mm -hmm. which is unfortunate because most of the people who come here aren't coming here illegally, but the way our system is set up, some people get kind of forced into undocumented status mm -hmm. and, and things like that. But if you're an immigrant from a place, especially a European immigrant, that's, that comes with class, that comes with status, that comes mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. um, uh, upper echelon belief. And, and so your, your treatment, even even as being an immigrant, your treatment might be slightly better than, uh, you know, a person, a darker skinned person anyways, or more mm -hmm. overtly, especially um, from the southern border is, mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. you know, where people are treated the worst here, I think, in terms of immigrant status. It's also choosing to ref to acknowledge your immigrant status here is also something that's kind sort of surprising, because if you're not, say, Mexican or South American, it's like, wait, why, why would you tell people that? You know, like, mm -hmm. it's kind of a, a jarring thing, I think, for like the way um, the U.S. Americans think about that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so for us, like for me, a, a second generation American on both of my grandmother's sides, mm -hmm. but, you know, multiple generation American from the United States or from my grandfather's sides, I'm I get their immigrant status by association. Mm -hmm. because I'm not an obvious white person. So mm -hmm. they'll be like, oh, where, you know, where are you from? You obviously come from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. um, and with you, like, yeah, you're lighter skin. Like to me, you're, you're, I don't know, like I wouldn't necessarily know what you were, but I, I would say that person is either a mixed person or I can kind of see how somebody would, you know, try to map out and try to find like, are they Middle Eastern? <laughs> are they... Whereas like here is the same thing. It depends on what side of the coast you are. On yeah. the East Coast, I'm Dominican or Puerto Rican. On the mm -hmm. West Coast, I'm Filipino or yeah. Mexican because those are the people that they see more of. Right, right, right. That you kind of, they're just kind of trying to pinpoint you in some way, shape or form. Um, so it's, I think it's a combination of what you deal with is like a combination of that you acknowledge your immigrant status, even though you are a grad student, PhD, you know, you know all that kind of stuff. Oh. Like it's, it's, <laughs> They're not expecting to hear someone say it. Yeah, I know. I think, you know, every immigrant, whether, you know, you are big quote and quotes, please really think of this quote and quote, low, low skill versus high right, skill. I right. really hate those terms, but that's how it's called in social science books, unfortunately. Um, every immigrant will have a, a tough time and um in terms of what they go through personally um of course the lower quote unquote lower skilled you are you're gonna experience even more discrimination and whatnot but um there is a, a big personal work you need to do internal work you need to do when you move away um, to a different country that speaks a different language that sees race and ethnicity in a very different manner and has a different history and um, relationship to your ethnic background and cultural background. Um, and, and I realized, for example, when I was in grad school, 
you know, they were really quick to sort of say, like, I guess, use me as their their diversity quota Mm. in the sense that, oh, this is, you know, the Japanese and French like you they get more than one, so it's a better. Yeah, yeah I mean, I've had that exact thing said to me in places before too. And it's like, oh, like this international scholar and this and that, blah blah blah. But then in reality, so you you I thought I would receive support, and 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 there was like there are resources in place for international scholar. I'm I'm not saying I didn't. But people are quick to hire international applicants because it looks good. They maybe bring money. I don't know. But at the end of the day, they have no idea what these folks go through. And there's not the kind of support that they really need. Right. And so, you know, even the concept of money, like we... We, we don't budget differently. Like it's not just going through a cultural shock. It's about, um, you know, we have families back home. We have, we had to save a lot of money to come here and, and you are about to lose it in two weeks because everything is so much overpriced here. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Um, so, you, you know, I think, yeah, they're quick to feel like, oh, this is a cool thing without really knowing what goes through and 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 all the hurdles that we have to go through. And so once you're in, you're in, but then it's hard to stay. And I guess a lot of international scholars, I mean, grad school is hard in general, but a lot of international scholars do have mental health issues because of these problems that are not talked about and are you know, um, or not follow through right. as they should. Um, I feel like even there, cause I used to work in, in HR in the tech field and we would hire a lot of engineers from Asia and South Asia. And, um, it's just this expectation that, you know, all of our stuff, cause we're the U S we're America, right? So you get our TV, you get our movies, you get our po- culture. So you should also understand um, our money system, you should also understand our the way socioeconomic status is, you know, like you should just understand this. So there's no no support in that mm-hmm. area. And I didn't realize until I kind of moved up in HR, the people that would come to ask me questions, they usually were very basic things like, um, you know, was $93,000 a year a reasonable amount of money to live in LA, you know, or Maybe they did know, but they're like, okay, I thought this was going to be enough money, but, you know, since the office moved to this area, now all the houses are, you know, way more like, how do you, how do you balance your, what you're making with where you're forced to live and stuff like that? And mm-hmm. we don't have anything for that. We, mm-hmm. And it's just like, that's your problem, you know? And so I, I found it very difficult to keep working in that industry because I couldn't be a support in the way... I, well, I didn't have the support to lend the support. You know, I could only do what I could do based off the fact that I knew what it was like to have grandmothers from other countries who I lived with, who lived in, who we lived in the same house. And so like, I would see what they would, you know, experience, but I'm also a kid that, that grew up here. And it, it's interesting how quickly the, it's like, yes, there's some cachet in being able to get, you know, 
this coveted person in engineering from India or something like that. But when they get here, there's no, there's no support. Like you're kind of given a big package at the beginning. And then after that, it's like, go out on the world. Yeah. You're like, okay, come, it's going to be wonderful. And then you're kind of left on your own. And, um, and, and that's why, you know, I know personally, I tend to like my, my friend community tend to be international folks just because we understand each other, whether um, I don't have necessarily mixed Asian friends much um, or at all. (laughs) I don't know any of them except through work, um, through the research I do, but it's, it's a thing, you know, it's, it's different. And, and I'm not saying, oh, I don't identify or I I cannot get along with, um, let's say Asian Americans or, um, Americans from different ethnic or racial background is just the deeper level of understanding will never be the same. Right. Because, and again, I'm sure once, for example, you're going to immigrate to Mexico, we will maybe have way more in common than even if it's different countries, different languages and stuff, but just the crossing a border and, and having to go through a shit ton of things, um, and, and again, and another thing is there's something about immigrating when you're a kid where you are with your parents. That's a whole set of another, you know, I can't imagine immigrating during middle school or high school and you're teenage. It must right. be terrifying. Yeah. But kids tend to pick up things really quickly. They're smart. and um, But unfortunately, it can also cause trauma. Then you have the more let's say mature adults who immigrates at, in their thirties or forties, who do their research, you know, who, um, who maybe have a, you know, a, a company or something, a system that supports them. And then you have people like me who were in their mid twenties and you like had the American dream and came from an internship that was unpaid. And, um, just came with one suitcase with just tons of dream in their head and nothing more. And, you know, um, kind of have to learn on the spot. Um, But again, I think everything changed the day I met my husband. Mm -hmm. Before that, it was just a struggle every day. Like I was like, I know I need to stay here. Like in the back of my mind, there was something that pulled me here in the U.S., Mm. I want to I want to do r- racial equity work. I want to do I want to work in arts and culture here. I knew that, but in the same time I felt out of place. I hated it. Yeah. Until I was able to find sort of a partner that was like let's do this together. Like right. it's it's not easy, so let's do this together and let's figure things out together. And once I found sort of that strong pillar in my life um things got much easier yeah um i i think at the heart of almost everything and it's a big part of why i even started this show in particular and all the other shows that i do as well is that need for community that we have as as people um i grew up predominantly in black spaces and even though i'm very pale black people can tell i'm black and so i get welcomed in Mm. very quickly so i always felt like i had black community I, I felt like I understood myself in blackness. Mm-hmm. Where I didn't feel I understood myself is in Japanese-ness because mm-hmm. 
my my main resource is my Japanese grandmother who chose to leave Japan because she was obsessed with American movies. So she actively sought out American spouses during mm -hmm, the Korean mm -hmm. War was when mm -hmm. my grandfather was stationed there. And, you know, she dated a couple people and then she found the guy she ended up marrying and she came here. And in coming here, she was shedding her Japanese citizenship and therefore her her Japanese-ness was gone as far mm -hmm. as she was concerned. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I didn't understand that. I had to become an adult. I had to have these conversations with a whole bunch of mixed people to really understand that like your Japanese nationality is a bigger part of your Japanese identity than your culture or your heritage necessarily. Your ethnicity is not as prevalent, or at least for her, it wasn't. So she thought of her kids not as Japanese and white. She thought of them as Americans. Right. And she was becoming an American. And so my craving for like Japanese-ness, she always would be like, you're not Japanese. I don't understand why you care. Mm -hmm. And that would be very hurtful to me because I didn't understand what she was saying, which is that I'm no longer a Japanese citizen. So why we're not Japanese anymore. Um, and, and I think what I'm assuming from immigrant status, which I'm, I'm going to be having soon, mm -hmm. is the, the period of time it takes you to transition from, in her case, being Japanese to being American. In my case, I don't feel American in America. I'm a second class mm -hmm. citizen in America because I'm mm -hmm. a, a person of color, because mm -hmm. I, I come from an immigrant family and stuff like that. I have, I, you know, I go lower and lower down the tier. I don't get American status granted to me until mm -hmm. I leave the country. When I leave the country, I, I get American status and I can see instantly the privilege that, that it comes with right. my, my blue passport. I know I'm going to experience that pri privilege where I'm going. Um, yeah, the shift is really interesting. It's like how is it you jarring? can... Like, are you just... <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it's really confusing um, how, you know, one day you can be at the top of the social hierarchy and... Mm racial hierarchy and the next you're not um and and I, but i think that's one of our strengths as mixed people you know i mm -hmm. think we should use that as our power to be able to navigate um not everyone can navigate that and and uh, i'm not saying it's not hard but we do have that ability yeah it's like a, a little bit of a superpower in being able to jump from community to community and even though you're not like the perfect fit you Blanche. You're like a chameleon. One of my yes. interviewees said, um, I'm like a chameleon. And I, I really feel like that was an accurate, um, accurate portrayal of mm -hmm. what we go through. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the, the more, you know, I stay in the U.S., it's been eight years now. I don't feel American. I'm never going to be American. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of Americanness in me, in my life now. Because like, why wouldn't it be? I, I mean, right. I'm 24 seven here. Are and you feeling that your Frenchness or your, do you identify as Belgian in any way, just because you lived there or more? French? I don't identify as Belgian in terms of like citizenship, but Belgium is a huge part of my, of my life like cultural identity to it i do belgian beers i do belgian chocolate yeah. i do belgian waffles like <laughs> all my friends are in belgium you know my my besties are in belgium yeah so it it's one of my homes definitely do you um, feel that it you're like you're how, how am i 
I'm trying to think of how I'm asking because I'm kind of asking a citizenship question, but it's also an identity question of like, do you feel it draining your citizenship or your identity with France and Belgium? Do you do you feel like it getting smaller so that when you go back maybe to visit that you don't feel quite natural there as as natural anymore there now that it's influenced <laughs> by question. your American lifestyle? I mean, when I'm when I go visit there, I definitely feel American. Like you do. I think in the American way, I act very American. Um, and when I'm here, people are like, "Oh, you're so French," you know. Like, <laughs> um, and then through my work now, especially recently, I've been um, through my work and this whole advocacy thing of this question of Japanese-ness and, and mixedness has really come to the forefront of my life and my identity and how I think too. So, but before, as a 25 year old, you just go through life, you party. Like I didn't really think deeply about those things. It's really recently, you know, getting in my closer to my thirties and now in my thirties and about to have a child that those things are becoming so present and so heavy mm. and I have no answer I don't I'm I'm just trying to navigate right these and so am I shedding my Frenchness um it's just that I don't get to perform Frenchness, Frenchness yeah I don't, like I don't have a situation where I get to be French or I get to be Japanese. Like the only situations I have is my once a week Skype call with my mom where mm. I speak in Japanese. That's literally the most Japanese thing I will do. Mm. And French is the same. Like it's a couple quick phone calls I'll get from my dad. Uh, maybe my cooking is really French. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, that goes back to the thing about that craving community is that even if like it makes sense that you would attach to a general immigrant community of people, international immigrant community versus specifically looking for Japanese French people, because that's going to be a lot harder. It's, a, you mm -hmm. know, at least you have this crossover and in mixedness that that's what we do. Right. We're like we see other mixed people and we're like, okay, you get this weird chameleon moment that I have mm -hmm. to have because, and I don't have to explain it to you because you get it and we can just mm -hmm. kind of sit in it. Um, that craving of some form of community where you're just not the only one when so much of your life is you being the only one. Mm -hmm. I mean, that makes, that makes complete sense to me, but I'm, mm -hmm. I feel like separate from what we're doing here for Militantly Mixed, just, I have so many questions about what it feels like as you start to feel your, if you even are aware of it, which I probably probably aren't until you go back to France, like, does the like, what is the shedding process like? Do you just like, you're just sitting there interacting in your American culture so much that by the time you go home, you're like, Oh, I do this thing now that I didn't used to do because this is something that they do in the States. Yeah, like, um, for example, you know, consumerism is such a huge part yeah, of American culture, pretty, like, it's pretty much everything here in the US. Yeah, and so, you know, I I don't abide by it, but when I go back home, I'm like, oh, I'm definitely different from all the members of my family and my friends or how they think about money, how they think about spend expenditure. Um, um, 
yeah, I mean, so th those are really hard. And, you know, for me, I'm like, okay, like, I'll, I accepted the fact that I'm likely going to stay in the U.S. most of my life and mm. that I'm going to just keep navigating that. But I'm comfortable with that situation now because I have a partner in crime, my husband, who is going yeah. through the same thing, same thing. But now when it goes to parenting, you know, I'm like, what do you do with your kid who is yeah. going to be American? Like yeah. by birth. Is gonna get the American citizenship, so get super different than what I'm gonna experience. And on a multi generational level, your child's grandparents are from two different countries. You, three different countries. Three yeah. different countries. Your parents, and you, their, your child's parents are also from different countries. And they, everyone wants to have their, you know, Steak. like the Indian grandparents were like, oh no, my grandkid is yeah. Indian, and you have to teach everything Indian. And I'm like, well, you know what? Like they're they'll go to school in the US, but then what do you do? Do you put them in bilingual school? Do you teach yeah. them what kind of values do you teach them? Because the thing is what I experienced, I was raised with a single mother who only spoke to me in Japanese in the Western world, where I went to a Belgian and French school. And I don't want to sort of replicate that experience for my kid in the sense that um, I was really two different people. Yeah. In two, in those at home, I was Maiko the Japanese, mm -hmm. and at school I was trying to fit in because otherwise I was the weirdo. Right, right. And I don't want that to happen for my kid. Like, yes, they're gonna have. They're gonna have some. For sure, because again coming yeah. from different cult but how do you and I, that's why I, I b before when I came to the U.S. I was really judgmental about assimilation mm. or these parents or grandparents who chose not to teach culture and like I didn't understand I was like why aren't you so proud proud of your yeah. culture like, yeah. how can you eliminate that and, and just forget about your past and uh, and not you know give that chance to your to the next generation but now I, I really understand because it's it is difficult to be different mm -hmm. and you don't want like you don't even want your puppy to feel right excluded from yeah. the dog park like that's so when you when you have that sort of protective instinct I definitely understand why somebody would like no you have to assimilate like be be what the majority is um oh, and you if hit on something that i like i've only been half thinking about of i've always wondered like why did my grandmothers give up what i'm assuming is a big part of their identity which felt like so easy for them to shed it to be here and to think that like I don't even realize how American I am and how even though I am different as a mixed person, I can at least maneuver any place in the United States for the most part and not have too many challenges. And I only become aware of that when I leave the country. And uh, and it yeah, may not have been for her. It may have been for her kids. You know what? I, yeah, like, yeah. But you yeah. don't think about that kind of stuff because you don't know your parents and you don't know your grandparents as people. 
I say this all the time, like, you know them as your grandparents or your parents, you know, they're not, you don't know them as fully formed people. So even trying to figure out how to meet them like that, how to understand the decisions that they made and how they impacted your upbringing and the kind of decisions you're making that are going to impact your child. Like, yeah, I think, but that's touched on something because I've been saying things like, I'm going to go to Mexico and I'm going to, I'm going to get in there. You know, I'm going to learn the cult. I'm going to try to adapt as much as possible. And I'm using different words. I'm using adapt, mm -hmm. not assimilate. I'm using participate, you know, not get rid of like, you know, I'm using words that make it seem like I'm not going to be doing exactly the same thing that probably both my grandmothers did and probably the same in the case of your mom because she was an immigrant to where you grew up. I mean, it's hard. And, and you know, I think what happened to me is my Japanese mom did not try to adapt. Like she really much stayed Japanese. She worked for Japanese companies. So she would do job, come back home, be Japanese. So for me, I was educated as a Japanese person mm -hmm. at home. And then in the school system, I was very much educated by the school system in a, in a European way. But I had to do that job as a kid yeah. of dissociating mm. home versus like informal home culture versus formal school culture and friends culture. And there was such a clash because, you know, you're not supposed to talk about boys in Japanese culture, right. you're not supposed to be loud. You're not supposed to have opinions and this and that. And nobody really taught me how to navigate that. And, and, and so part of me is like, if, yeah, I'm very proud of my culture and tomorrow if my kid is born, I'm going to be, oh, you have to learn about French culture, Japanese culture, Indian culture. But then that's so much pressure to put on them because. And then they got to go to school and be American. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. it's, I'm not saying it's violent, but it's. It's jarring. It's physical. It's There's physical. A... It's mental. It's like, yeah. it's like putting a lot of pressure on saying, Hey, you, you have to know all these things. You have to know how to behave in all these ways. You have to know all these customs, but you need to put a face. And go to yeah. the world as an American. But so I think what's going to be different from your child is the fact that you can have the conversation you and I are having right now that I mm -hmm. can only assume our parents did not have. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, yeah. Like, even though both of my parents are biracial, they weren't talking to me to prepare me for how my mixedness was going to carry out in the world. We, in silos, talked about the Black stuff, the Japanese stuff. Mm. You know, like, we did that in silos. We didn't cross it over you may have had something similar to that or you know like you said you don't no one told you be japanese at home be french outside mm -hmm. you just picked that up from osmosis you just experienced it and you mm -hmm. got the social cues that we just kind of naturally pick up in in places but you're having these conversations and you're studying stuff like mm -hmm. this too so you're gonna have the tools to be able to probably really early on be talking to your kid or just like you're experiencing something that probably your friends aren't, mm. but it's okay because we're going to talk about it. When you're confused, we'll talk about it. I'm confused too. You know, like, I think that's a different thing that's happening now that we're having conversations about being mixed more openly than my, even my parents' generation did. Um, it'll be a lot easier for people 
in that second generation tier to be able to talk that, you know, that's happening now to be able to talk to their children about it. And, and just like, no, you're so right. You're not yeah. going to be perfect. You know that you're not going to be perfect, but you're going to get further. I think your kid's going to be far more prepared because you have so much awareness to it. The other thing is you live in a really great city for experiencing there's Japanese school. There's the yeah. Buddhist temple uh, where I used to live in West LA is the temple right of there. people in general. Yeah. The, the Japanese school, the, the grocery stores are there. There's also the little Tokyo side of town as well. Um, there's the French school. There's two or three French schools. I mm -hmm, think, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. so you could technically, you know, uh, and I assume there's probably Hindi classes somewhere as well for, for kids. Like, I think there's ways that you'll be able to expose them at least in the language side of things. But yeah. you know, it, it does mean more work for your child than other children that they're gonna be around will experience. Um, and they're gonna resist it too because you don't wanna be different. So you do resist learning language. Here in the States, that's usually really common, resisting learning the family language because you don't wanna mm -hmm. be weird at school. And then you get to be an adult and you're like, shit, I wish I, <laughs> I spoke my family's languages. Um, yeah, so I, I I think you'll be more prepared and you're just going to have so much more awareness that your child is going to be able to have a little bit more awareness than your generation. No, I think your point is absolutely correct is there's a shift in parenting period. Like yes. parents now, like active parenting means talking, communicating, and even about insecurities, mm -hmm. which was not a thing, I think, in the past. You just worked, worked, worked. and just try to provide for your family. And that was what was um, put on a pedestal as being a good parent. Today is different, like actively educating, discussing about dif these difficult, mm -hmm. you know, uh, issues. Um, and mental is, is health, we talk about mental health now, which we didn't use. Yeah, so no, you're absolutely right. So maybe I should have overthink this whole thing too much but well you're uh, gonna right i mean you're about to make <laughs> like you've made a person it's that's gonna be a weird i think i like i'm 45 and i'm not planning on having children but it always it's always so wild to me that we make people like i don't understand it um i get it, it but it seems wild that we do this and then we gotta make them then we gotta like teach them to I know it's, it's so such weird. a big yeah <laughs> so there's crazy. only so much you can do too and because life society is going to happen to them yeah and you're not going to so, be there for every step um but um this uh, like I feel like I could talk I'm, well I'm glad that you and I have a reason to be connected more because I, I you've triggered so many thoughts that I haven't really been able to actively you know work through um that I would love to talk to you more about stuff like this. I, I guess one thing before I ask the final question that I normally ask everybody, mm -hmm. try to pinpoint a little bit of something. You you had mentioned a comic earlier where you said something to the effect like you weren't really like actively, not that you didn't have an awareness of your mixedness, but you weren't like actively being able to participate like mixed, you know, mm -hmm. um, before. Was it your transition to the States or when do you feel like you started to go from just like you knew you were French at school and Japanese at home to being like a mixed person. I think it's extremely recent. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm talking like. like maybe a few months ago mm. and um, with, so maybe this is a good time to talk about briefly my research and yeah. CMRS. Yeah. They have been, um, so 
my current research is on the identities and embodied and digital practices of people who identify as black and Japanese, like, like you, for example. Mm. And what prompted me to start uh, researching about this particular population is the documentary on Netflix about Naomi Osaka. Yeah. That, oh who is, gosh, yeah, who is Haitian so and Japanese. And, you know, the documentary was about a bunch of different things, but also her identity struggle. And not, I'm not black and Japanese, but there's a lot of things that resonated with me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that day, like up and watching that show, I realized I am mixed and I am, mm. I am not French or Japanese. I'm French and Japanese and international and immigrant Right. And and all this intersectionality yeah. makes me very complex. And 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 so that documentary really prompted me to do this research. And uh, eventually, I want to research about whole Hafu population, mm. but I wanted to focus on you know Black and Japanese first in terms of like doing more racial equity work. And I feel like it was the, probably the most pressing um, population to look at first, but. Um, so I think it's it's really recent. That documentary came out in 2021, I think. Yeah. Then I started, and then recently I I joined the Critical Mixed Race Studies Association, and realized that oh, there is a community. There mm-hmm. there are people looking into this. There are people studying this. It's not, it's not uncommon. Mm-hmm. But okay, I'm 31. I think back in the days at school there were pretty much nobody in Belgium like it might be a thing here in the U.S. but it's not as much even in the U.S. we had very few like the old the oldest person that I'm that I can think of awareness like in the early 90s was Naomi or like 90s was Naomi Zach was like the only person I knew that was like doing something where mixedness was a part of Mm -hmm. what they were talking about in Mm -hmm. academia um, so there are more now, and I, I have tons of people I can, con- or not tons, I have a few people I can connect you to if you want, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a whole I mean, there world. are people like you now who, you know, like there, there's social media, there is right. way more representation through the media and popular media, thanks to, to folks like you, but, um, you know, I don't think mixedness was an identity stamp or an identity marker for me. Right until I found these two big things in my life, which is this documentary and CMRS. Um, And I'm not sure if tomorrow, let's say I go back to France or I go back to Japan, that would still be a thing because it's still very much in this American realm that I see mixedness. And I understand it and I discuss it in, in a very American way of understanding it even though I come with this lens of being an immigrant um so there is layers to that um I did create a performance a choreography during grad school which did not have an actual word title the title was just question mark exclamation point question mark exclamation point that was my (laughs) title because I couldn't put words into sort of my my fucked up mind and all that was going through. And it was multilingual. It was English, French, and Japanese. And um, 
so I guess it's kind of started even during grad school because sure. of these markers that people would put on me or because you know I would there was one scene for example I just I just go to the Starbucks and I say my name is Michael but people was like Michael Manko Manko right. in Japanese means vagina and I'm like what's going mm-hmm. on like why you know yeah. why can't I just be me or I say oh can I have a a pain au chocolat which is like the quintessential French breakfast and people like chocolate croissant and like I was like what is this world like (laughs) where where am I like I felt like a total alien um and and these are small stupid things but on a daily basis not yeah they snack a lot and so I guess it may have started in grad school gradually very gradually but the Naomi Osaka documentary definitely was sort of the starting point of like, hey, I'm mixed mm, okay. and I need to do something about it and I need to talk about it and I need to find people yeah. to talk to about it because it's not easy. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So awareness wise, we'll say that it's more recent. Um, existence wise, it's just been there, but whether or not it's like screamed loud in your face or not, it was just kind of happening um but now that you have more of an awareness of it uh one thing that I do like to ask everybody that comes on the show because sometimes we talk a lot about trauma or isolation or whatever mm-hmm. I like to see what do people love most about being mixed which will be really mm-hmm. interesting given that you have such a recent like marker as to when it's become a part of your actual identity what I like the most um I think is my empathy towards difference or towards um, people who feel different. And so I have maybe more patience towards that. Like, I don't know if somebody who has not experienced multiple culture hadn't had to navigate as much like code switch as much as we do have that same kind of understanding and patience and compassion towards sort of the visceral and embodied difficulties or navigation that goes into it and I think again that's power like I see as doubleness instead of seeing it as oh half being half something or half oh other my gosh how are you and I not best friends already seriously <laughs> the amount of times I tell people it's more not less it's not half it's like we're literally more than one thing so why do we view it as this like smaller vert like we're smaller somehow mm-hmm, double mm-hmm. I like using it double makes sense that's a good one too yeah, okay. I mean, I think it multiplies. Like it's yeah. it's not like a mathematical logical equation and it's yeah. that is just it sort of multiplies like your empathy multiplies your awareness multiplies your your way of behaving can multiply yeah. and so your identity is so polycultural in in many ways um I truly believe that being mixed and having to act especially if you're actively having to jump from culture to culture like at family gatherings or out in the world or whatever it is 
I, th I do fully believe that that amps up your empathy because you're, you're forced to have to see people in different places, dealing with different things and having to adapt to all those spaces. Um, yeah, that's one of the things I've, I've, I also agree with. Empathy is such a, it's, I think it's so much more amplified when we have to, when we have to have interactions with other cultures. Yeah, like you know? I think we, we have the ability to, even if we don't agree with someone's perspective or way of behaving, we have the, the capacity to understand where they're coming from and why do they think this way, do things a certain way, mm. which, because again, you know, Japanese household, really Japanese, mm -hmm. and um, it clashes with Western ideology, so, ideologies. Yeah. Um, and in in my in my whole life, I've uh, my academic life at least, I always lean and study towards um, African uh, diasporic cultures because I always felt like. Um, you know, I'm stuck with this Asian, Eastern Asian-ness, stuck with Europe, European aesthetics. And I'm like, I, I need to go out of that. I want to know something different. Mm -hmm. And so I, I've learned a lot about African diasporic cultures and heritages. And um, so I think it's that capacity of understanding others perspective other cultural mm -hmm. mental whatever other perspective ways of moving and behaving and and being in the world um and being empathic about that because we're all so different and it's easy when you've been raised in a certain way with one monoculture to just sort of follow that trend or be against it but instead, I think we're a little bit more fluid and a little bit more all over the place, like a little bit more. I agree. Yeah. Multidimensional. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree. Um, thank you so much for joining me on this. I'm I'm looking forward to what we're gonna be, you know, working kind of together on in the future. Um, but I'm I'm excited also to see what happens with your research. Um, you know, on on a purely selfish way you know the more black japanese mixes that get talked about i think it's such a such a hard part of my mix in mm -hmm. and we can you know talk about that too um it's such a hard part of my mix and and, and maneuvering especially on the japanese side as a mixed black person mm -hmm. um so i would love to hear and more than just my experience of what happens uh, the osaka documentary Hachimura situation, like all of that is very, I'm paying so much attention to it. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Why don't you tell people if you'd like to, um, how they can find you or if there's something connected to your research that you're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I try to update my website, mykolele.com as often as possible with um, the project I'm currently involved in. So that's a, a good way to learn what I'm doing. If you are a scholar and academic, academia.edu you can find me as well um i try to keep my social media as private as possible um, um but yeah so but stay in touch you know cmrs 
is a great uh, resource. I think we're both going to be involved in it for the next few years. Mm-hmm. So um, crmrs.org, uh, please uh, go and check it out and be involved as much as possible and and try to find you know other resources like this podcast or other organizations and groups in your area or or virtually that um, you feel um, you can affiliate with. And that's been a huge, huge support to me. Militantly Mix is a main hustle media podcast produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Fury. Music is by David Bogan, the one. You can follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Militantly Mixed. If you'd like to become a sponsor of Militantly Mixed, please go to patreon.com slash militantlymixed for monthly sponsorship or paypal.me slash militantlymixed for a one-time only donation. And if you like what you hear on Militantly Mixed, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to be your mixed-ass self. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle.